Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Hello, this is Carlos Pasquale, and welcome to this session of Sierra Week Conversations presented by IHS Market. This has been an exclusive series with leaders in the energy industry and public policy, finance, and technology, people who are at the heart of shaping the response to the energy transition and how we address the challenges of the pandemic today. In this conversation, we have an opportunity to talk with an individual who has really pushed his company to the top of the industry, Josuzon Ilmas, the CEO of Repsol. Josuzon, un placer estar con ustedes. It's a pleasure for me. Great being here. Well, just John and I want to have a conversation that takes you some of these challenges that we're addressing today. The impact of the pandemic, the commitment to net zero and what it means and what it means for the transformation of the industry. But just John, let me begin with one of the toughest questions. A combination of the pandemic and the oil price war created a crisis in the, in the energy industry. And yet at the same time, Repsol has taken this commitment to net zero. Can net zero and financial prudence and stability work together? I mean that uh, they have to work together. I mean, no matter what kind of short-term circumstances we are living, we have uh, as Repsol and a strong company to be sustainable uh, to achieve the net zero uh, emission uh, level at 2050. And, and let me say that we have to be part of the solution. I mean, there is no way outside this strategic view about the sustainability of our company. And we have to, to be uh, sustainable, but at the same time uh, being uh, profitable. And as you said, uh, Carlos, we have to take into account the circumstances we are living and we are experiencing today. So this year is going to be very tough uh, in any industry, but particularly in the oil and gas uh, sector. And we have to combine this sustainable approach with uh, preserving the balance sheet of the company. For that reason, at the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, in the early March, we launched a resilience plan, very focused on preserving the cash and the balance sheet of the company. We have reduced our ROPEX in 450 million euros uh, this year. We cut our capex uh, in 1.1 billion euros. That is more or less uh, 28, almost a 30% of Repsol capex. We are optimizing the uh, working capital of the company, and the, the, the main target we have and we are going to fulfill in this resilience plan is protecting the balance sheet and uh, finishing at the end of 2020 with that debt level uh, below the debt level we had as a company at the end of 2019, after, of course, uh, paying our financial commitments and uh, our, our dividends. So, uh, but at the same time, the target we had for this year in terms of uh, reducing enough 3% the carbon intensity of the company is going to be achieved. A 30% of the capex we are going to execute this year is going to be related to renewable projects. That means that we are uh, fully focused in fulfilling the target we have to be sustainable, but at the same time, we are making a great effort to protect the balance sheet of the company. 
Indeed, um, at times like this, uh, cash flow is, is critical, and you've been extremely aggressive on it. Uh, one CEO of a company told me that in this kind of a situation, it's not that cash is king, but cash is God. And it seems like you've reflected that in your strategy, but how are your investors responding? Okay, uh, as we talked in the first uh, thought, I mean, we have to combine both approaches. And it's true that today uh, in Repsol, 32% of, uh, of our investors, that is a unique figure uh, in the oil and gas sector, are ESG investors. That means that they are uh, also focused and concerned about the sustainability of the company, about uh, how we are delivering these sustainable targets we have uh, as a company in terms of reducing our CO2, our footprint, uh, reducing the carbon intensity of the company, and so on. But at the same time, uh, of course, uh, we have to, to, to demonstrate we are profitable. So on top of uh, reducing uh, of, uh, in, in 2.3 billion euros, optimizing what I said before, OPEX, CAPEX, working capital, and so on, and reducing the debt level of the company, uh, I, I want to underline that in this second quarter, we have reduced in 500 million euros the debt of the company, the debt we had at the end of, of the first quarter. That means in, in, the, in the middle of the lockdown in the countries where we operate, Spain, Portugal, Peru, and so on, we were reducing our debt. We were able to issue 3 billion euros in, in new bonds to guarantee the liquidity of the company when financial markets were closing or were, let me say, complex. And at the same time, in the first half of the year, we have been able to get a positive cash flow from the operation in all our businesses. So uh, I think that this combination of uh, being fully focused in, 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 in getting returns, being uh, very focused in protecting the balance sheet in this uh, difficult short-term uh, situation, but at the same time, having a clear ambition, a clear aim of being sustainable and looking for returns in these new businesses, in the decarbonization approach, I think that our investors that are in some way linked to this history, and they are in some way showing that being involved in Repsol as shareholders. And that's extraordinary that a third of your investors are looking at this from an ESG perspective, a sustainability perspective for the future. And I, I want to go into that further, but I, I have to stop for a second because I know how deeply and passionately you care about the employees and the people at Repsol. How have you worked with the employees to help them manage through both the health issues and the uncertainty issues of, of the impact that this has had on their future and the potential of a second wave? I mean, let me say, Carlos, that it was very hard at the very beginning of the pandemic. We were weathering in an environment that was fully unknown for us. I remember those days of, uh, of March when in, in our main country, Spain, we were suffering a lockdown. Same thing in some other countries where we operate. We start having the first infected people in, in, in our offices, in our plants and so on. I mean, our, our main, uh, let me use the term obsession was to guarantee the continuity of the operation, but not because of our business, because we are managing a critical infrastructure. We are managing uh, essential services and, and our, our, our duty, our, our service to our society at that time was to guarantee 
that the raw material that our society needs for uh, producing the, the plastics protection equipments to, to fuel the ambulances, uh, the transport to feed uh, our citizens, and so on, all that was working in the right way. And it was an issue at the very beginning because, uh, I mean, this we were putting people out in, in quarantine. Uh, we had to, 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 to try to manage our industrial plants to guarantee this continuity. But after, let me say, these first uh, weeks of March and April, I mean, we managed to, to run all that in, in, in more or less in a quite manageable and, 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 and good way. Uh, after the return uh, to, to, to a more normal work uh, in May, June, our priority was the guarantee the health of our people. I mean, uh, social distance, uh, working in, 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 in our plants and, and, and offices, uh, combining uh, pre presential work and, and teleworking, because in some way uh, that is the best way to protect and, and, and our people and to guarantee this social distance, investing hard in, in, in checks, temperature checks, uh, protocols and so on and the perception of our people is has been very positive about that this second wave that in some way has been a bit anticipated because we expected uh, this second wave for for the fall for the autumn but you know that in spain portugal in western europe we are experiencing this second wave and now in august uh, september first of all the impact is lower is lower because I mean, we know a bit more about this pandemic. Uh, secondly, because uh, the, the ratio between infected people and, 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 and the, the, the severity of the, of, of the virus uh, is, 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 is lower. I mean, we are seeing that in, in Spain, for instance, we have more or less the same number of infected people we had in March, but the situation in hospitals and in the health system is fully different, fortunately. So we are managing this second wave let me say in, in in a better way and over this last uh, week and days we are seeing that in some way the, the number of infected people in our operation and in our company is going down so i don't know what is going to happen in the future i'm not an expert in, in pandemics uh, i don't know if uh, all that is going to last for some weeks or months but i think that we are better prepared uh, to, to cope with, uh, with this situation now. I think a critical point that you raise is that we need to learn throughout the process. We need to adjust, we need to talk to our people. And, and indeed for many people, the, the fact that you're taking a course which is innovative is motivational and that actually spurs them on. And it brings me back to the question of net zero. Mm -hmm. Get there, how does Repsol get there by 2050? I mean, uh, first of all, let me uh, explain in, in a very wide way what is becoming net zero. We have defined a carbon intensity. That means that we are taking in the numerator all the CO2 emissions we have in, directly in our operation, but also taking into account the scope three. That means uh, the, the, the emissions uh, originated or caused by our clients using our products. And all that is uh, divided by the total energy uh, amount, the joules we produce uh, in, in, in direct primary uh, energy terms. So our aim is to reduce to zero this, uh, this carbon intensity index by 2050. 
But the most important thing is not talking about 2050, is uh, to have a credible uh, pace to achieve that target. That means we are going to reduce at 3% uh, this year, uh, at 10% or above this figure, we are going to, to announce all that in our strategic plan in November by 2025, 20% by 2030, and, and so on. And there is no a single technology behind all that. Uh, it's a, a, a wide uh, a strategy or basket of technologies, including uh, energy efficiency in our operations, reduction of methane emissions in our operations, uh, inclusion of uh, biofuels in our refining activity, uh, a more intense use of circular economy using wastes coming from pyrolysis of plastics and so on uh, as feedstock to produce fuels, the use of hydrogen. Uh, we are in the right place to do that because uh, because the renewable energy is going to be developed in Spain because our, our natural conditions, hydrogen is going to be part of our economy uh, in, the, in the future. On top of that, uh, more intense activity in the chemical business that, as you know, the chemical is using oil with a lower emission of, of CO2. And on top of that, we are also entering in the uh, power uh, renewable generation. So taking all these uh, actions and working together with these technologies, we are delivering what we said in terms of reducing our carbon intensity. And I'm going to be very transparent and very honest. Taking the technologies foreseen for today, uh, we think that we are going to be able to reduce enough 70% the total uh, footprint we have by 2050. So either we are going to, to experience at technological evolution in coming 30 years, that is going to be possible because it's impossible to forecast what, what will happen in coming decades. Or secondly, if we are not able to do that, our ambition is to compensate with natural things this gap between the capacity we could reduce in coming years and the, the net uh, emissions coming from our products by 2050. But as I said before, is a basket of technologies because we need all that to achieve this ambition. The, the realism you show is refreshing. And, and let me take one point of that um, in the energy sector. Yeah. How difficult is it for a company in oil and gas to go into renewable energy and compete? First of all, we are customer-centric companies. I mean, uh, I'm going to put the, the, the example of the case of Repsol. We are not, we are a, a small, medium company in the sector that we get uh, 1 billion euros of EBITDA from our commercial operation year after year. We are growing in this commercial side. We have more than 10 million clients in, in the energy uh, branch in, in Spain and Portugal, in the Iberian Peninsula. That means that we have the levers we need to start uh, widening the current uh, products we are selling to our clients. That means that in, in mobility terms, we are uh, going to be, and we are today, providers of uh, recharging electric, electric recharging services uh, for mobility, uh, gas for cars, uh, biofuels, and so on. And at the same time, we are entering in the energy housing uh, market, uh, widening also the basket uh, of, of products we are selling to our clients and selling them gas uh, and, and, and electricity in the retail business. So. We have the capacities to do that because 
we are leveraging in the clients we have today. Uh, on top of that, um, we have industrial plants, uh, refineries, chemical plants, where uh, we have the, cap the, the capacities to, to, to develop uh, this uh, new generation of biofuels. Uh, we have the right uh, place and the right plants to start uh, developing the hydrogen uh, economy. Uh, we are industrial companies with capacities to operate uh, plants, to uh, invest in industrial projects. So entering also in the renewable generation business uh, is a natural uh, step. Where it's very important to capture and to get the whole return of the project. For that reason, we are developing all that in an organic way, uh, trying to get the promotion, development, construction, operation, maintenance, uh, uh, returns. And all in all, when we develop a renewable power project and taking into account that we have the short position in the retail power market, taking the whole return of this project, we are in the double digit. So we, we may compete with the rest of the projects of the company. So um, we have uh, the levers to be an actor, to be a player uh, in this uh, uh, less carbonized uh, economy, being an oil and gas company. So indeed, industry is about transformation. And let's use our imagination for a second. Just think about the idea of a refinery. I mean, in the future, is a refinery going to be an electric charger? Is it going to be a producer of biofuels and synthetic fuels? Do we have to just completely reshape our imagination about what this industry is going to look like? I mean, first of all, my, my, I like to stress the point that oil is not over. We are going to need oil for decades, not only for mobility. I mean, sometimes uh, some thoughts defend the point that uh, electrification is going to be the solution for oil. I mean, we have to be very clear about that. The electricity today has not any kind of solution for planes, for shipping, for, for trucks, for heavy transport, uh, not even for a main part of the light mobility. So we are going to need oil for years. Uh, on top of that, if we take the oil demand in 2040, 2050, perhaps uh, a half of this demand is not going to emit a single ton of CO2 because it's going to be used for uh, uh, producing materials, asphalts, fibers, uh, and so on. That means that we are going to need refineries also to process oil in, in 10, in 20, and in 30 years. But as you said, I think that the refineries, they are going to be some kind of industrial pool where we are going to have an, an input, and the input is going to be oil, the input is going to be renewable power to produce green hydrogen, the input is going to be vegetable oils, the input is going to be uh, wastes coming from the recycling of plastics and so on, and we are going to have an output. And the output is going to be, in some cases, uh, the, the, the current fuels, in some other cases, it's going to be uh, a, a power, in, we are going to see synthetic fuels produce, and we have a quite a relevant project on that, that we are going to develop this project in, in Spain. It's quite innovative. We take the, uh, the, the CO2 streams coming from, from our reforming plant. We reduce the CO2 to carbon monoxide, CO, and combining this CO with green hydrogen, uh, produce electrolyzing uh, renewable energy, uh, we produce uh, synthetic fuels that taking the whole cycle of the product 
they are net zero emissions. We are starting with a small plant producing 50 barrels per day. But our idea is to try to escalate that for the future. So the refinery is going to change in this conception. We are going to have different input, different output, but always with a, a view that the view is going to be to fulfill the energy supply that we have in our society. And indeed doing that by trying to challenge yourself technologically at every step of the way on how to do it better, which you describe extraordinarily powerfully. You took us in the journey of oil. What about gas? And you had mentioned hydrogen earlier. Are the two of them going to combine? What is the future of gas and hydrogen in the future energy mix? I mean, first of all, it could be surprising that I'm stressing uh, too much this concept of hydrogen, but I mean, that is not something strange for us. Today, we operate the largest hydrogen plant in Europe, in Cartagena, in the refinery we have, and uh, we operate in the southeast part of Spain. We are the largest uh, hydrogen consumer in Spain. Spain is the, ide the ideal country to develop this hydrogen technology because we have sun, we have, and we are going to have a lot of renewable energy. We are an island, let me use the term in, in, uh, in, in, in power terms, because we are not connected uh, with the grid uh, of the continental Europe. That means that we are going to have cheap energy uh, for hours. That is a, a huge opportunity to use hydrogen to store uh, this cheap energy that is going to be produced by renewable energy. So we have all the raw elements to develop this hydrogen economy. On top of that, I mean, gas is not over. Gas is going to be an important part of the solution for climate change. I mean, everybody is saying that electricity is the solution. If we take today, worry, what is the main CO2 producer in the world? I mean, elect electricity produces 42% of the total CO2 emissions in the world today. Uh, the, the figure for transport is at around 23, 24%. What is the problem behind this electricity figure? That I mean, part of this electricity is produced, uh, burning coal. If we were able to, to, to shift, as, as, as you did in the States some years ago, from coal to gas to produce power, we will be able to reduce enough 15% the total CO2 uh, emission level uh, in the earth. So it's a huge figure. That means that gas is there. Natural gas is going to be part of the solution for decades. And on top of that, we can't forget that we always talk, and I'm talking about green hydrogen, but we also are, we are going to have the opportunity uh, to uh, experience with another technology that is the blue hydrogen, that today is cheaper than the green hydrogen. In the blue hydrogen, we take uh, this, we are able to, to, to store or to capture the, the CO2 and we produce uh, with using gas natural, natural gas as raw material, uh, hydrogen. If we take the, the total cycle uh, of this uh, hydrogen in emission terms uh, is, uh, is, is zero emissions because we are capturing the CO2 emitted, uh, burning the natural gas. So all that is going to be also part of the solution. So both are related, natural gas and hydrogen. Natural gas is more mature, let me use the term. But I think that both are going to be part of the solution. It strikes me when you speak that two words, one is innovation, the other is optimization, that both of them need to go together. And constantly you need to go through this exercise of optimizing how you get to the best outcomes. Uh, I just want to ask you about 
nature-based solutions. You mentioned that earlier and the importance of taking them into account to address the gaps that technology cannot, cannot reach at this point in time. Have you developed confidence that those solutions will result in real reductions of emissions, that they're verifiable at this point? Hey, Carlos, if, if we analyze the task we have in front of us in terms of uh, coping with climate change, I mean, we can't uh, waste or discard any kind of technology or solution. We are going to need everything. We are going to need energy efficiency. We are going to need uh, renewable energy. We are going to need carbon capture. We are going to need, uh, of course, biofuels. And we are going to need uh, natural things. Uh, I mean, we are convinced as a company that that is going to be part of the solution. But we also know that our first task is not to compensate, is to try to reduce from our operations and our, uh, our products uh, this emission level. All that is going to be our priority. As I, as I said before, if we are not able, because we don't see uh, any technological evolution in coming years or decades, we are going to use natural things to compensate our emissions. Saying that, I think that is very important to underline the point that these natural things they have to, to, to be uh, very clear in terms of, uh, of, of, of guaranteeing that uh, what we are doing in this sense is additional, uh, is going to be, uh, uh, we could demonstrate that we are capturing in an additional way uh, these CO2 tons and all that has to be in some way guaranteed in a very solid process. But from my point of view, this natural sink solution is going to be an additional solution to cope with this problem. Jesse John, let's hope that never again that we have to face in our lifetimes a situation where countries have to invest 20% of their GDP in a year to rebuild. But in effect, that's the reality that we have right now. And from your experience, what, what else, what is it that government and industry need to do to ensure that we come out of this process in a way that's sustainable, both commercially and environmentally? Uh, unfortunately, as you said, Carlos, that is a unique uh, situation we are experiencing. My, my, my point is governments, public sector, and everyone has to act quickly. I mean, uh, today we have a million of people uh, with the risk of uh, losing jobs, uh, not having the, the, the minimum income, uh, a, a family, a person needs to, 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 to live. Uh, and it's very important to protect, uh, to, protect to support uh, the, 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 the current industry. When I'm talking about industry, I'm not talking about our industry, I'm talking about uh, any kind of industrial activity because uh, you know that is a society, uh, an industrial society is more protected uh, to, to cope with this kind of shocks. Uh, and of course, we, we have to, to diversify, we have to enter new sectors and so, so on. All that has to be additional, but I think that is very important to now, now to protect the current economic structure we have in our societies because it's the, 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 safe, the, the, the safe net that uh, a lot of people in this society needs today uh, to, to survive. And let me add another, another point. I mean, again, the, the te technological neutrality concept. I mean, we need to respect 
and to use all kinds of technologies to, uh, first of all, to sustain the economic activity in our societies, and secondly, to cope with the climate change uh, ambition we have. Because, I mean, the CO2 molecule, let, let me joke, has not any kind of DNA. Uh, all the molecules are exactly the same. So what we are doing in terms of uh, isolating a building, uh, employing people uh, that could be suffering a, a bad economic situation uh, to, 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 to make or to develop this kind of, of jobs, the CO2 we are saving there, isolating a building, is as important as the CO2 molecule we are saving, uh, enforcing or developing a, a renewable generation project. We need all the technologies working together. And perhaps today is time to rank what is the effect of every public uh, euro or, or dollar in CO2 terms, but also in job terms to uh, be resilient in our situation as we are experiencing today. Indeed, jobs, investment, and resiliency, extraordinarily important pieces to put together. We have just a minute left. You've been involved in politics at the top of industry. What makes you optimistic for the future? I mean, I, I'm, I mean I'm optimistic, but I'm not optimistic because I have to say that I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic because perhaps in this debate about climate change, decarbonization and so on, we are moving from theory to practical terms. From We are shifting in some way to pragmatism. We are starting to talk about how to reduce the CO2 emission level in our society. And I'm confident, I'm optimistic, because in this practical term, in this pragmatic and not dogmatic uh, arena, uh, I rely on our industry. Because in the oil and gas industry, we have, first of all, we have talent, we have clients, so we are in the market, we have a good position to, to evolve, uh, we have uh, technical skills, we know how to manage uh, complex projects, and let me say, all that, all these ingredients are the ingredients we need to uh, succeed in this evolution. We need a society to cope with the CO2 uh, emission problem. So I'm confident that the oil and gas pro uh, sector is not going to be a part of the problem. I rely on the oil and gas sector as a main part of the solution of the problem of climate change. Just so John, thank you for your intelligence and your attention to detail. It strikes me in your discussion, the way that you describe the scope one, two, and three emissions that are part of Repsol's profile and the need to understand every single piece and that each piece can have a solution and that you need to bring technology to every aspect of that. And in the end, the point that you stress, it's not a single solution but how you package the solutions to the problems that you face and then how you innovate and continue to change and bring together these realities, cash, emissions, and sustainability. An extraordinary conversation with the CEO of Repsol, Josudon Imas. Josudon, thank you very much. Thank you, it has been a pleasure being with you even in a virtual way. Thanks again for tuning in to another Sierra Week conversation 
presented by IHS Market. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at sarahweek.com.